The sermon text this morning is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arrive. arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Have you heard anyone ask, you know, what are God's purposes in this tragedy that they're walking through? Or perhaps you've even asked, you know, what God might be doing when the evil seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. Or perhaps you've thought, why hasn't God answered my prayers? You've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed in faith. And there has been no response. This has been said before that when you pray, perhaps you feel like the heavens are like brass. You know, C.S. Lewis, after he lost his wife, uh, he had a time of great grief. And, uh, and in his time of grieving, he would pray. And here's what he testified about his life of prayer. He said, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Has this been your experience when you have been in tragedy, in trial, that you feel as if God is a, a million miles away, very distant from you, very, very silent? For most of us, most Christians at least have had periods of time where it's been immensely difficult to be found in faith when you have struggled deeply. Even people outside the Christian faith often wonder where God is. Well, Habakkuk, <clears throat> and people have walked away from the faith because of this 
silence of God or the unique circumstances that they find themselves in. And yet Habakkuk is written for these people. It's written for us. You know, we're doing this series on the minor prophets. So there's 12 minor prophets. We did six last year. We'll do six this year. The minor prophets were collected together into one book known as the Twelve. And they functioned kind of like a mini-Israel, trying to call the nation back to faithfulness. Uh, Habakkuk, the prophet we're looking at today, we don't know much about him at all, actually. Uh, we don't even know what town he comes from. We know when he prophesied. He prophesied during the rise of Babylon as a military power. So in the early part of the, the 7th century, you know, remember from last week with Nahum, uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, fell in 612 B.C. Uh, Jerusalem had not been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire yet. That would come in 587, 586 B.C. So we're in that time of maybe 610, 620, or 600 B.C. Now Habakkuk is a unique prophet when you read this because he's the one prophet. When you think of the prophets, normally they have a word of God that's given to them, and then they are directed to go to the people and call for faith and repentance. You don't have that with Habakkuk. He's not going to a people. In fact, he doesn't even have a word from God. He's confronting God. We kind of have a snapshot in his prayer life. This is him praying before God. And the structure bears this out. So when you read this book later, as I, I trust you will, uh, the first two chapters are just question and answers. You know, Habakkuk raises a complaint about God. It's almost like, do you even care about us? You know, he's interpreting the silence of God as not caring and different. And then God's going to answer him. And then Habakkuk hears the answer from God, and he's frustrated, and he asks another question in chapter 1, verse 12. And that question receives an answer from God. And then in the third chapter... There's no more questions or answers. It's just Habakkuk writes a psalm of worship to God. He makes this shift from complaining to celebrating God. Now, all of us here either are in a struggle or will be. It can be sickness. It might be financial issues. It may be a relational meltdown. It may be you just aren't doing well in life. And if you're not there now, you will be. And Habakkuk is a tutor for us to lead us from the tendency of complaining to celebrating God. And that's where I hope to lead you. That's where I want to be led. So we're going to look at the problem that Habakkuk has, and then we'll look at the praise that Habakkuk has. So two buckets for you, that's all. I'm, the first is the problem that he has with God, and then the praise that he offers to God. So those are the two things we'll hit. Now look with me in chapter 1, verse 2, and he really outlines the problem that he has with God. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help? Will you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me look at iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Now, if you were to read the rest of the first chapter, you see that the society of Judah, this is the southern kingdom that he was ministering to, uh, that it was filled with destruction and violence and contention and strife. In other words, these were very, very dark days. In fact, he says that the word of God was paralyzed. Here, the word of God is not even having an impact on society. Society is crumbling around him, and he's complaining to God. He's saying, where are you? I'm praying, you're not doing anything. 
society continues to get bad to worse. Why do you sit in heaven idly? Habakkuk knows God could do something. It seems as if God's indifferent to it all. Don't you even care, he could be asking. You may actually feel that way about our society. As our society tends to crumble, you may be praying for it. I pray that you do. We ought to. We have a good example in Habakkuk. Maybe you're wondering, why, why are you taking so long? Why are you so silent when I pray? Well, that, that was his heart. Well, God answers him. And look with me at verse 5. Because Habakkuk is complaining that God is doing no work. And so he says to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty nation. Now, this is not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. Clearly, God is doing a work. In fact, it will bend your realm of believability of what God will do. He's going to raise up the nation of Babylon. Chaldeans and Babylonians are the same people group. He's going to raise up these Babylonians. And he's going to use them as a rod of discipline to bring about the justice that Habakkuk wants. Habakkuk wants justice in his own community. And God's raising up these Babylonians as an instrument of justice upon the very people of God. He's going to chastise the people of God with Babylonians. Well, before I, I move to the second question, I do want to point out one lesson you can draw from Habakkuk at this point, and that is that you are and I am susceptible of losing focus of God in the midst of trial and adversity. We have an ability, our, our vision gets blurred about God. Many people, uh, when they experience trials and adversities and suffering, uh, they begin to question, does God care? It's a, it's a natural response. You see it in Habakkuk. You know, they begin to wonder, I've prayed and I've prayed, I don't hear anything, no change is coming. Is he indifferent to me? Does he not care? And if we're not careful, that can move into wrestling with God, which is what Habakkuk is doing. He's wrestling with God. In fact, the name Habakkuk means to embrace, kind of like embracing as a wrestler would. He's wrestling with God. And if we don't come to God in humility, we can easily begin to think and get angry at God, even grow bitter at God, even move in hostility towards God. So sometimes we, we begin to think that he doesn't care. Other people, when they hit this situation, they begin to hit these troubles, they think that God is absent. You know, the silence of God is equivalent to the absence of God. So he's not answering my prayer, so he must not exist. And so we quickly move to thinking, I've prayed and I've prayed, I've had all these problems, there's been no relief, so God must not exist. People say that, I just stopped praying, he, just, he doesn't exist. As if God's presence is only verified upon his answer to prayers, you would have it. Or, or, or some people, it's not absence, but there's an ambivalence. In other words, even Christians, when they're under the gun, in, in, under the fire, under the heat of trial and suffering, uh, they pray, and they pray, and God brings no relief. And so they, they don't stop believing in God, but they just kind of push him off about a million miles in another universe and say, well, yeah, he's created all things, but we're just here to slug it out for ourselves. You know, he's just, it's, it's up to us. You know, he obviously doesn't care. He's just, he's out there, but he's not intimately 
involved in the affairs of my life. These are various ways that we can approach God that will take us off rail. Habakkuk, though, shows us how we can approach God in honesty. This is a lament when he says, how long, how long shall I cry to you for help? This is a lament. A lament is a spiritual complaint to God. It's a complaint to God when things have gone totally bad in our lives. We're suffering. Maybe we don't even understand it. We can't even explain it. And we're disclosing to God the hurt that we have, the struggles that we're having, the discouragement that's part of our life. This is what the psalmist did. If you read Psalm 10, he says, why do you stand so far off? Why do you not answer my prayer? Or Jesus Christ from the cross, did he not pray a prayer of lament? Did he not say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the language God has given to the saints so that we can come before God in discouragement and in sadness and appeal to God and let him know that we are discouraged, we're downcast, we're struggling. Something we are invited to do. Something we, we ought to do. You know, over this past year, Friday was the one-year anniversary for Anna Caroline. Uh, being diagnosed with cancer. It's been a year of lament. Uh, I can't speak for Kitty and Brandon. They'll share their own words. But for Carol and I, it's been a year of lament. We have struggled, no doubt. We've prayed these prayers. We've called out to God. I have to confess I haven't always done it well. I've grown frustrated with God. Uh, I remember in one point of frustration, you know, there was 120 days in this first year that they spent in the hospital. That's like you picking up and moving in there for four months. That's a long time. And I remember praying to God, and I did it sarcastically. I repented of it. But I said, you know, you can bring them out of Egypt. You've got to be able to get them out of the hospital. Just asking God, you know, th- that's the point. You, you won't. In a lament, you know, you want to pound the earth just to exhaust yourself, just so that your, your fatigue and your anger is just exhausted so that you can see God. That's the language of the saints that we can cry out to him and we can say, God, where is your mercy? It's it's scripture for us to be able to open our hearts and to be totally transparent to God. We haven't always done it well this year, but we have found great relief in it. It hasn't changed the circumstances, but it has changed us in them. And that's the point of a lament. So in this first question, he's lamenting before God. He doesn't have the answers. Things are not changing. Notice, though, that when God answers him, it raises another question. So God says to him, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. You want justice? Justice is coming, and it's going to come at the end of the spear of a Babylonian army. So here's what he says in verse 12. This is his second question. He goes, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous? So you hear Habakkuk is frustrated. How can you use the Babylonians of all people to bring justice? You're holy, you're just, you're pure, you're eternal. And you're going to raise up a wicked group 
the Babylonians were trying to outpace the Assyrians in their atrocities. They were swift. He says that they were fast like leopards. They swarmed like bees. They would consume everything when they destroyed. These are historical nations of which we know were devastating to other nations. And Habakkuk can't get over. How can you be holy and use wickedness to advance your purposes? But not just that. He's also questioning how can God use the Babylonians who will also destroy the innocent in Jerusalem with the wicked. It's not like the Babylonians are going to come in there and just choose the wicked ones and bring punishment to them. You see in 15, they throw their net wide. They scoop everybody up. Innocent and non-innocent get sucked into the machine of Babylon. And, he's compl- and, then, and then he says, they don't even know they're being used of God. And will you bring justice on them? They contributed to their arrogance and their fierceness and their prowess that they're doing these things. So Habakkuk is dismayed with God. Do you care? He's questioned God's motivation to even care. He's questioned God's methods. I mean, why are you using the Babylonians? But then Habakkuk does a full stop. He stops right there. And you see in 2.1, you see in 2.1 he says this. He says, I'll take my stand at my watch and station myself at the tower and look to see what he will say to me in my complaint. There it is. He knows he's complaining because he knows so much of God. How can you do this? Habakkuk is in theological travail right now. He's asked two questions of God. God will answer now his second question. His second question is answered in chapter 2, verse 2. You see what God says. He says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So God is now saying to him, I'm going to answer your question. I want you to write this down. So this little private time of prayer that we're having, it's going public. It's for public consumption now. It's going to help you, and it's going to help all who follow you. Know that I'm faithful. I want you to write it down now so that when it happens, you know that I am faithful. So God has him write it down. And here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. Look, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. For it will surely come. It will not delay. So he's saying that you will wait for the judgment to fall. You want the judgment to come on the Babylonians now? You wait. It'll come. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's speaking to the Babylonians. But the righteous shall live by faith. Now he's saying, behold, his soul is puffed up. He's, God's saying to Habakkuk, I will bring judgment to the Babylonians. I'm going to use them to advance my purposes. And because of their arrogance, I will bring judgment upon them. And then if you read the rest of chapter 2, you will read about that judgment. There are five woes that God says he will bring. Remember what a woe is. A woe is a curse. So a woe, the opposite of a woe is blessed. You know, like the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, happy are the poor. Woe is the other side of the stick. Woe to them. He says those who plundered will be plundered. He says those who conquered will be conquered. That they see themselves like a great building, they will collapse. He says those who were shameless will be full of shame. Those who were idolaters will be exposed for the foolishness of their idolatry. He's going to bring upon them all that they sought. They wanted to have their glory fill the earth. And you see in verse 14, God says, My glory will fill the earth and cover 
the world as the waters cover the sea. God will have the last word. The Babylonians wanted it. They will not have it. If you look in verse 20 at the end of God's answer, he says this. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. God's speaking for himself. He says, I am in my holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, all the nations will stand before God one day and their mouths are going to be wide open, but there will be no words coming out of it. He will bring judgment completely and finally. And that's what he's saying. He says, there will be judgment. This is really a warning. If those of us who struggle with pride and self-sufficiency and self-confidence, self-reliance, kind of a looking back on your career as kind of a testimony to the great things that you have done. Be warned. The puffed up and the arrogant are not well thought of with God. There'll be a day of silence. We can crow about all the things that we do now, but there will be a day of silence. The judgment will come. He assures Habakkuk. You don't need to fear that. But notice what he says there, the, the contrast to the puffed up. Look back in verse 4, because he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the New Testament writers, Paul, uh, in Romans and in Galatians, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, quote this, and, and they look at this, they draw from Habakkuk, and they say that the righteous, that those of faith are right with God that there's a righteousness that is given to them through faith in Christ. And we see that in Romans 3. Habakkuk, though, is not giving this full treatise on justification by faith, or justification and faith, or righteousness and faith. He's simply saying the righteous will live by faith. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think he's saying this, that... that there's a mild rebuke to Habakkuk, I think, because when he condemns or when he complains to God that he's using the Babylonians to crush a people more righteous than they. I, I wonder if Habakkuk's saying, I'm having trouble with you because you're using the Babylonians. I mean, I know we're bad, but they're really bad. I mean, they're really bad people. How can you use the really bad people? Almost putting himself in a righteous position. Like, like we have done better than they have done. We are better people than they. And this is why I'm struggling with you, God. He doesn't, see his, he doesn't see himself in need of God's deliverance. The righteous who live by faith. What is this faith? It's faith in God who will deliver, of which all people need. You're not saved because you're better than somebody else. You can always find people that are, that are worse than you. And you can probably find a slew of them. But we're not saved because we're better than another. We're never saved based upon the things that we've been able to accomplish as if God's grace hasn't helped us to do it. I mean, if you think that because your life has been morally cleaned and that somehow puts you in a better position with God, read Habakkuk again. The righteous live by faith. Our faith is in God who delivers. He promises to save us from ourselves. Not because we, we hit the top 20 percentile of moral people. You know, we know this because if you go back in the pages of Scripture, back to Genesis, Abraham was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was drawn out. He was called by God out of the land of Ur. 
And God made a promise to him. And God said to him, listen, I'm going to give you descendants, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you a seed that will come to this world and bless the entire world. Abraham heard the promise of God, and it says in 15.6 that he believed him. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't have anything. He had a barren wife. He had nothing. And he believed that God had the power to save through a seed that would come through his body. There would be one to come to deliver humanity out of the mess that we've got ourselves in. Abraham looked forward to that seed to come. He believed in the promise of God that he will deliver. Habakkuk was looking forward. We are saved the same way. We're just looking backward. We're just looking backward to the Messiah that has come. We're just looking backward to the promise that was fulfilled. So when he says the righteous will live by faith, he's speaking about that while the puffed up will be destroyed and judgment will come upon the sinner, those who are looking to God for deliverance will be delivered from judgment and will be saved from facing that day when mouths are open but no words are coming out. What will be coming out are thanksgiving from our mouths. This is for us. The just live by faith. How do we endure in the midst of trial? How do we endure in times when society is crumbling or our families are falling apart? It's by faith in God delivering us. Faith is a trust in God. Listen, we have confused the issue. Faith we have seen as kind of mere mental assent. These are 10 things I need to believe, and if I believe these things, or these are 10 things I need to know about God, and if I know these things, I can repeat these things, then somehow I'm good. Look, I, I can repeat to you the gospel. I can say to you, and you may be one of these people. You may be able to explain these things. But faith that saves from judgment is a trusting faith. It's a trusting in God to deliver you. It's a no longer trusting in yourself or all the things that you have become or all the things you've done, even in his name. It's resting in him alone. The person of faith knows that they're a sinner, that they need, that they can't do anything. God, you've got to save me. And if you really trust him to be able to do that, and you know that he's going to do it, then your life is going to be marked by change. The fruit of that life is going to be a, a life of repentance. It's a life of repentance over sin. It's a changing in the way that you once lived. It's a life of seeking fellowship with other brothers and sisters. It, it, it's a different life. Because you now understand that a God who loves you has saved you without any contribution that you've made. And you're overwhelmed with affections for him. You want to live for him. That's the fruit that you see. But not just the fruit of true faith is, is a trust and a repentance, but it's also waiting. You notice what he says there. You have to wait. The Bible's, do you realize the Bible is full of people that wait? Adam waited, Noah waited, Abraham waited. They all wait. They all heard the promise that God would deliver. Not one in the Old Testament saw it. That's why when you look at Hebrews 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. Read through it. He starts with Abel. By faith, Abel believed. Goes through all this litany of Old Testament saints. All the way to the end of the chapter. At the end of the chapter, you read these words. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. Not one of them saw this Messiah come and do this work that they were hoping on. It's called a proleptic faith. I am believing in advance for what God is going to do. It's a beautiful faith. We are the same. 
believing in what God's going to do. In the midst of trial, he will deliver me. Maybe not from all the physical issues, but he will deliver me in the end. And this is what changes. The first two chapters are just, God, do you care? He says, yes, I do. I care about you. I care about the injustices. And I'm going to bring justice to it. He says, but you're doing it this way, God. That's the wrong way of doing it. He says, no, this is the right way. You just have to wait and believe, even though you don't understand. Well, Habakkuk has changed. You see it in chapter 3. In chapter 3, it's a psalm of praise. In fact, if you go to the end of chapter 3, you'll see that it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. What's that mean? It means he wrote a song. This is a worship song. They sang it. They were excited. In the midst of trials, they were singing about God's glory. Why? What made the change from complaining to celebrating? What made the change from being burdened to being just blessing God for his goodness? Well, you see it in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 2, notice what he says. He says this, he says, he says, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. I do not fear. And, and then at the end, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk knows the Babylonians are coming. They're going to be at the gates of Jerusalem, and they're going to destroy the place. But he knows God. He knows God to be a merciful God. And so he says, in wrath, remember mercy. In other words, this is the object of faith. His faith isn't in some nebulous God that's just sovereignly ruling like some Allah. No, he is a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. He believes in a God that does save, who's merciful to sinners, who is merciful to the repentant. He just says to God, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Who does that sound like? Sounds like the thief on the cross, doesn't it? Remember me when you get into your kingdom. That's all he says. Remember me. Remember mercy. Th th this, is, this is how God saves us. This is how God delivers us. Through judgment. Not always out of judgment, but through the judgment of this world. In Titus chapter 3, we read, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Do you know this God of mercy? When you appeal to God, do you see him as cold and distant? Kind of with his arms crossed, waiting for you to ask the right things in the right way? Or do you see him as a father who loves you and is merciful to you? And though you go through trials, it is not without his love and his care and his compassion, knowing that he'll deliver you knowing that in the end you'll thank him for these things because they will have worked on your soul in a way to understand him in a way that you never could apart from it. He changed because he saw God as merciful. But not just a God of mercy. He saw God as one of deliverance. If you, if you were to look at the verses 3 through 15, it, you have this kind of a, a narrative of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. He talks about in verse 3 the his glory filling the heavens like the pillar of cloud. In verse 5, he, he brings plagues on Egypt. In verse 7, he, he crushes the enemies of Israel as they travel. In verse 9, he dries up the rivers so that Israel can walk across the Red Sea. He's rehearsing God's past work of salvation when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's saying, God, 
I know you can deliver. I know that we can be in the midst of enslavement and you can deliver me. You know, this idea of deliverance from exile is throughout the scriptures. You know, the first exile you see is, of course, from the garden, isn't it? When Adam and Eve were exiled, they were thrown out. They were thrown into the wilderness because of their sin. You see the, you see the exile in Egypt that God delivered them. And now, of course, Babylon. Habakkuk knows the Babylonians. What they do is they come in and they transport the people back out. They get them out of there. And he's saying, you'll deliver us from Babylon. And in fact, it happened, right? Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, three waves God brought them back. He knew that though we be exported, transported out of our country, God will promise to bring us back to his land, his kingdom, and his promises. But even that return from Babylon was only a foretaste of the exile that Jesus Christ leads us out of by his own death and resurrection. The exile of sin, that's where we are right now. Do you realize, this is why Paul, this is why Peter calls us pilgrims. We're in exile. We're waiting, we are still, though we have the cross and the resurrection, that's a foretaste. But we wait to be returned to God. That's our hope. That's what carries us into rejoicing. That's why if he takes everything away from you, you will be okay because you're traveling back to God. You're a pilgrim. We are in exile. This is the nature of life in exile. But it will be different. And that was Habakkuk's hope. And he could rejoice in that. And that's what you see in 16. Look in 16. He turns from that past look at God and his saving mercy in the exile from Egypt. And then he looks forward. In 16, he's honest. He says, I hear. In other words, I know that you're bringing Babylon on. And here's what he says. My body trembles. Lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You can almost hear the footsteps of the soldiers coming to the city wall. You'd be trembling. I'd be trembling. I mean, it's honest. When we go through suffering, it's a real deal. We're not these Christian scientists that think it's all illusion. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. And he knows it. That's why he gives these words to us. He says, yet I wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He knows God will do it. God told him to wait in chapter 2, verse 2, and he is waiting right now. You know, can you imagine what that would be like? We don't know if Habakkuk survived the destruction of Jerusalem or if he was transported. We don't know. But we know that he was waiting for it. But here's what he says in 17. He turns his mind from the judgment that will fall upon the um, Babylonians and he knows now that justice and deliverance will fall upon him. He says in 17, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. This is what faith is. You see the principle of faith in 2.4. You see it. Look, this is in Technicolor right here. I mean, he has nothing. You, if you live in an agrarian society and you have no animals and you have no crops, it doesn't get any worse. And he says, yeah, I will rejoice because the Lord is my strength. 
there is this profound faith in the goodness of God to deliver when you have nothing. There aren't these circumstances that are floating around that might come together for you and they might work out for you. There's nothing. And he's saying, I'm trusting. This is the essence of faith, is it not? In Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Faith will be turned into sight on that day that we see him. But right now, we don't see how God will move. This is the essence of faith. Can you rejoice in the midst of your trial? You know, when you look at the book of Habakkuk, you see the exile theme. The theme of exile moves into the New Testament clearly with Christ. But it's not just that. Uh, you see the theme, like in chapter 313, he says, Habakkuk says that he will come out and bring salvation. God will. You know, he's speaking about God coming out of heaven to deliver Israel from slavery to Egypt and how God has come out in a son who would deliver us from slavery to sin. That God has left his abode to save us. Jesus is the fulfillment of that coming out of God through the incarnation, taking on flesh and blood, living like us, living with us, but not sinning like us, that he can be a savior for all of us. But not just that. You also see this picture of how incredible God is to use wickedness to advance his own purposes. He uses the wickedness of Babylon. They think they're doing their own work, and God twists it to bring about his own purposes. This is the glory of God. But this story is a precursor only to the story of Jesus. I mean, the wickedness of the religious leaders, the betrayal of Judas, the cowardice of Pilate, the desertion of the apostles, and the wickedness comes upon Christ, and everybody thinks it's a massive defeat. And then three days later, stones are rolled back. Christ is raised from the dead. The defeat, the wickedness, reigning and laughing over his death is now scurrying for cover because God has taken the judgment and he's made victory out of it. That's the hope of the Christian. In the midst of our suffering, there will be victory. Defeat is never final in God's kingdom. It's always turned to victory. That's the hope we have. That now we live by faith. We're in exile. We live by faith in the mercy of God to bring about these things. He doesn't do it because he has to do it. He doesn't do it because we warranted it by our behavior. He does it because he's kind. God is gracious and merciful. He's abounding in love. He's steadfast in that love. But we also recognize that we live by faith. We live in this time between promise and fulfillment. He has promised to us that we'll be with him forever. It has not been fulfilled yet. We live in exile right now. Will we be people of faith? Trusting in him, resting. And we're people, you know, living by faith flourishes only in a church. It only flourishes with friendships with which you can be encouraged by, strengthened in, related to. This is why... If church is just a Sunday ritual, it will never serve you in these days of exile 
as life-giving relationships that you need to have. And obviously not just relationships in the church, but other relationships that you have, but we need Christian relationships to help remind us of these truths, just like I'm reminding you right now. This, this book has been helpful to me. It's been helpful to me. I, I hope to you as you go through various trials that you'll face, that you'll remember that be honest with God. Come before him. God, where are you when I cry out to you? I, I would go over Psalm 123. As the hand of the servant looks, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of the mistress, I will look to you until you have mercy, I would pray. hundred times. Grant mercy. We can rejoice. Even though things in our world are uncertain, we will yet rejoice in him. He will make our feet like the feet of a deer. It won't be easy. It won't be for you in these times. But he will strengthen us and encourage us. That's his promise. That's what our faith is in. Our faith isn't in the deliverance out of the issue. As if, as if God's going to save us. He can't fix No, our, our deliverance is often through the trial. Just like Jesus. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. And for us, it's the same. Humiliation leads to exaltation. 